Welcome back. As always on Thursdays, we always touch in with one of the good guys in uh, conservative media, Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson, producer extraordinaire of the Hugh Hewitt Show, and of course, master of the universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, troll-free web surfing experience for Hugh Hewitt fans and listeners. And if you were a member last night, well, you would have seen me on there. <laughs> we were just doing this last night, Dwayne, as, as we normally do every week. Um, I, glad to be on. And uh, you and I have done this shtick on your show for how long now? How many? How many prime ministers have we have have we outlived? Uh, well, I think it's four, right? Because we started doing this in two thousand seven, so about fifteen years, right? And uh, when I was at uh, Blog Talk Radio, I think we started doing this when I was at Blog Talk Radio, and. Um, who I, it wasn't Cameron? Who was before Cameron? I think I think it was still Blair or the um or was uh, or was it the Labor okay, uh, PM so, that, that so succeeded if Blair? We, if we started doing this in two thousand and seven, right? Right. Uh, that's going to be depressing. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been the tail end of Tony Blair. That, that would have been the beginning of Gordon Brown. Right. Leading into David Cameron, leading into Theresa May, leading into Boris Johnson. So five. And actually today we're going to be, we, we know we're going to be on our sixth British prime minister in, in this, uh, in this lengthy series uh, that Dwayne and I have been doing for the last 15 years. Um, so Boris Johnson went screaming down into oblivion. But he as didn't. A, as, as of what, October? Well, well, how in the world does that work? Well, I mean, I know why it, I know why it works that way. And I mean, this is functionally. Okay. So, so, and, and I, and I, and I get, you know, I'm not stupid. I, I understand too. I'm just thinking, how does this actually work when you have 54 people thus far that you have blown out of your government or, or, or <laughs> right. run away and quit? um and that's like one six that's like one sixth of your caucus in in the and then, parliament and then you're and then you're going to say oh but i'll stick around as a caretaker until october until you people are going to have your election and then i'll go my my merry way and i'll just keep things going for a while um yeah i mean this this works how? when this works when you have a prime minister who's who either resigns because they just want to retire i mean that was blair right blair just wanted to blair wanted to leave so he resigned and gordon brown took over he's because why gordon the, was his number why two the conservative why the conservative party didn't just have an internal election well they're going to but the problem is, is that their process for doing this is a multi-ballot thing that takes three months to get through and normally that's not a problem you know when Theresa may resign because of uh, for David Cameron and Theresa May, when they both resigned, it was over a policy um, uh, fail, right? It wasn't right. It had nothing to do with a scandal. It was a policy failure. So nobody had a problem with them sticking around for three months while they picked somebody who was going to front the new policy. Um, and with Johnson, it's different. I'm not sure the last time that they had a prime minister who had to resign over scandal. And I don't think it was a conservative anyway. No, um, I, don't th I don't think so at all. So, So the question is, is... How many parties does Boris Johnson have between now and then? <laughs> how many? How many parties? How many? How many uh, bullies and sexual harassers end up in his cabinet again? I mean, there's a whole series of different scandals that have gone on here. The parties weren't even the the catalyst. It was the uh, sexual harassment scandal involving I forget the, the minister's name that really I think uh, you know 
was the straw that broke the camel's back in this case. Whether but, it's whether it's Liz Truss, whether it's Michael Gove, I mean, you would think that the that the conservatives would be able to look around and go, uh, you, you're it, go. I and mean, cause, and cause I think that they're move. going to. I think they're going to. Now, the normal process would be that the existing prime minister would stay in a caretaker position. But the existing the normal process doesn't usually include a, a prime minister who's who's had to resign only under pressure when even the people he was appointing to the cabinet to replace the people who were resigning in protest started resigning in protest, which is what happened last night. Um, nobody wants to work with this guy anymore. He's and and the problem for the Tories is that if they leave him in that um, caretaker position, Labor is likely to call a no confidence vote. And labor might end up actually succeeding at it and getting new elections because there are so many Tories that are just disgusted with Boris Johnson that they're going to want to get him out of there. They so, are, but but do they really want to do they really want to open that Pandora no. box and, and let and let labor back in? No, they, no, they, no, they, because they labor their, would do labor would do considerably better in this I environment and than, and than the Tories saying. would. It, it took a long time to relegate. Um, uh, labor to obscurity where they belong and you don't I mean you you don't want to you don't want to do that um, so the odds right now the uh, Betfair has the next prime minister odds uh, cooking right now um, the favorite oh wait, um, before before we get to the next prime minister let's let's finish this up because I think what the Tories are going to have to do is they're going to have to pick a, a, a different caretaker right and um, I think it was uh, it wasn't the New York Times that suggested it. Maybe it was the Washington Post. Apparently, they're talking about asking Theresa May to step in, or at least they're discussing it, <laughs> which would make sense because Theresa May is not going to be in the mix to be the next prime minister. She's out, but she can be a caretaker prime minister, and she's somebody that... She knows the functions of the job. Yeah, she knows the functions. She can settle things down. She doesn't really have any long-term political aspirations any longer, so she's... Not a bad choice, really, if you just want somebody to take over for three months. They'd have to ask the, you know, they'd have to, you know, put it before the queen and have the queen appoint. That's that's the normal process. But they have to pick somebody to do that. And I think that the 1922 committee process, which is what kind of governs these leadership elections, is going to is going to shortly have an, uh, an addendum to it, which is the, you know, break glass in case of emergency. <laughs> uh addendum which is when right. when 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 the care when when the existing pm is just too embarrassing to, to leave around oh look we found another codicil here we go <laughs> the the committee will vote for a caretaker uh prime minister who will prom maybe who will promise not to not to run for the actual leadership position because then you get into the issues which we're going to discuss in just a minute of maybe if you appoint somebody who's already in the mix to be johnson's successor then you're tipping your hand, you're giving them an unfair advantage, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe they, maybe they come up with a process that say, well, we can appoint a caretaker uh, as long as it has, you know, robust support within the 1922 committee. And it's somebody who's promising not to be, you know, not to run for the PM position. I think that that's what they're going to do. And it will end up being Theresa May or some other nationally known figure who can calm things down enough to give Tories some breathing space uh, to... Uh, to pick their next leader, but my goodness, what a disaster this has been for for them over the last few weeks. It, it really has. Um, as far as uh, who's in the mix, there's really about 
six names that uh, that odds makers think are in the mix. You know, there's other people, you know, bringing up all sorts of possible names. But if you actually look at where the where the money is going on this, uh, you know, because, you know, we'll bet on anything these days. Right. Uh, Rishi Sunak is uh, the favorite at 39 to 10 odds. Uh, Penny Mordaunt is at 33 to 5. Jeremy Hunt is at 43 to 5 odds. Liz Truss is at 42 to 5. Tom Tugendhat is at 19 to 2 odds. And uh, Ben Wallace is at 39 to 5. So that's kind of that's kind of where people are thinking um, the top five or six are. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any great insight into this because, you know, while I follow British politics at sort of a macro level, I don't really know who's up and who's down in, yeah, in, 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 in Tory I, I don't circles. Uh, Sunak is, you know, he came uh, as, as ex-checker, he came across as uh, pretty well-spoken and, and uh, you know, pretty pretty uh, articulate. He he seemed to be a pretty smooth operator. I don't I don't know his politics that that much. Well, I know that people have been talking about Dominic Rabe, a Rab. Um, Dominic Rabe is, is, Rab. is another one. Um, being, He's like the number two about. guy anyway, right? I mean, he was he was. I think he was originally a Brexit skeptic and converted to Brexit true believer. Right, and and there's people talking about Jacob Rees Mogg and and all those people, but but they're. They don't seem to be in the mix as far as uh, competing for for the big for the for the big chair. Yeah, I wonder if Liz Truss isn't a um, isn't a dark horse candidate for this because um, you know maybe they just really need a completely different sort of vibe after the Johnson scandals, right? And Liz Truss might provide that for them. I mean, and again, as, and as we talk, purely speculation. We, sure, and as we talked about last night, the thing that's uh, the thing that's interesting about this is this may be a blessing in disguise for Boris because by getting out now, um, he can kind of walk away before the, the you know, the crashing wreckage of Brexit, uh, Brexit really manifests itself. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, the, the contradictions in Brexit are eventually going to turn this into a massive liability. And, and we're already starting to see this because the EU and the UK are already fighting over the divorce agreement that Johnson himself negotiated now doesn't want to adhere to. Um, and that itself is going to be a sticking point. I think in, in leadership position is, um, are you going to, are you going to fight like Johnson did against the EU or are you going to try to fix what Johnson broke <laughs> right. dealing with the EU? That's one big question that's going to come out of this, uh, this leadership selection process. And, It'll be interesting to see who they put up front and what their first steps are on Brexit. But um, the way Brexit stands right now, it's really unworkable, especially in regards to Northern Ireland. And Scotland is almost as bad. Scotland's very upset about the about Brexit. They were doing much better uh, under EU uh, customs uh, regulations. So I, I was predicting that that Boris Johnson was going to be the first prime minister of England at the at the very end of the full Brexit process, because right. Scotland and Northern Ireland were eventually going to split off, but um, so clearly that's not the case because he's not going to be prime minister of anything. The question is though, and this is this is the reason why I think that they're going to um, try to get rid of him as fast as possible, is that 
This is a guy who almost didn't leave last night and this morning, right? I mean, they really had to push him to go, and that's unusual in that system. Usually when you start mm-hmm. having significant cabinet re- resignations, prime ministers just leave. Even after Michael Gove got blown out. and well, he, he, he sacked Michael Gove. <laughs> yeah. Not, but, he but, blew I mean, him out. <laughs> yeah, even after he blew out Michael Gove and everybody, and, and there was uh, more people that bailed out on, uh, on the news of that, he still said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not, I'm not leaving. I'm not quitting. And by the time it got up to 50 overnight, uh, it was up to 54 by the time he actually went ahead and, and uh, announced his resignation. But it, when it finally got to 50, I mean, he, I mean, he had to, at that point, it was, yeah, but it, it was going to be him and the maid in, 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 in 10 Downing street. And that's it. Did you, I mean, you didn't, I don't know if you had a chance to hear his resignation speech. There wasn't a whole lot of remorse in that resignation speech, right? No, I, I think he's no. setting, I think he's setting up the big Bojo comeback at some point in time and maybe during the leadership transition process. Now he wasn't the only prime minister who was heard from today. <laughs> no, that's, that's did, did you see John majors? Uh, I did uh, see John Majors, and I thought, uh, you know, who? I didn't even know he was still around. He's still around. He's still. I, I, he might even still have a seat in Parliament, but I could be wrong about that. But um, now, for people that forgot, he's the one that took over after Thatcher, right? And who ended up getting? Um, who That's ended up losing long, to Blair? That's a long time ago. Yeah, and he left in '97 when Blair came in. Blair yes. came in in 97, and the reason why we can all remember that is because he was just in office a couple of weeks, or just a short period of time, before um, Princess Diana was killed in the uh, tunnel but, in Paris. Uh, yes, but um, getting back to getting back to uh, Boris's. Uh, well, I don't want to uh, leave Major yet. Let me let me just okay, read let me just read you what Major had to say, just so people understand what I'm saying. Some will argue that his and, and Major's saying you got to get rid of him like right now. Um, Some will argue that his new cabinet will restrain him. I merely note that his previous cabinet did not or could not do so. For the overall well-being of the country, Mr. Johnson should not remain in Downing Street when he is unable to command the confidence of the House of Commons for any longer than necessary to affect the smooth transition of government. So, in other words, John Major is saying, get out, get out. Um, and, and that's and that's what I was saying is is I don't know how that's uh, a, a, a tenable position for him to stick around un, until October. Nobody wants him there till October. They're gonna they're gonna speed this process up. I just I, I can't imagine him sticking around that long. No. Um, and as for the tone that uh, Boris Johnson used in his in his speech day, it was about six minute long address, and then he you know walked back into into 10 Downing Street and his attitude in, in the way he talked about it. Um, you're right. He's setting himself up for some kind of a, uh, uh, you, you know, you want me on that Brexit. You need me on that Brexit. That was, that was kind of, that was kind of the, you know, the, yeah. the, the pith of the gist he was laying down there. Yep. All right. Let's move from credibility crises in the UK to credibility crises in the, um, in the United States, uh, and uh, we've got Joe Biden, <laughs> who's 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 riding a a red wave all the way to new lows. Before we get to the latest in the civics poll, which we talked about a little bit last night, we should 30. talk about we should 30. talk thirty percent, thirty percent. 
All right, we talked about it. Um, have you? Did you expect to see this level of media onslaught against Joe Biden? I mean, even even a couple of months ago, did you uh, expect to see the media go this hard after Joe Biden this early in the presidency? Qualified, yes. And the reason why is because when you have inflation running away yeah. the way it is now, and you see the poll numbers collapsing, the media is a lot of things. They're sycophants. They are progressives they are liberals they are an extension of the democratic party but they're not stupid they see joe biden as a failed presidency now they may have a soft spot in their heart for joe because he saved them from four more years of trump there's there's a you know there's a lot they they still may wish about joe biden but the cold hard reality is they know that the democrats are going to get smashed in 22 and if joe biden stands for election in 24 unless something dramatically happens and and uh, he can somehow reverse the aging process, he's going to get smashed in 24. Right. At some point, it's everybody for themselves, because even though it's kind of a hive, uh, a hive think or a hive mentality amongst the Democratic Party, at some point, the rats start fleeing the ship. Right. 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 And, and and we're already seeing that. And that's also part of the the data that you get out of the uh, civics poll. Well, and look, other polls too, for well, that matter. And, and look and look at the look at the staff departures uh, within the White House already. Uh, this I mean, we, we thought that a lot of people left in senior positions during the Trump administration. Uh, and that's mainly because he staffed it originally with a bunch of weirdos to begin with, but right um you know joe biden staffed it with supposedly people that were going to you know take take the ball and move forward um we talked about this last night there was lots of stories on the eve of the inauguration talking about the the comps team as being you know this superstar quartet of of uh, all females that were going to lead the the comp shop for joe biden there's only one left, and the one left is the one that's the press secretary now, and she is a a a class A moron. Well, yes. Simone Sanders <clears throat> is gone. Kate Bedingfield has has now decided to spend more time more time with, with her, family. her family. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> Jen Psaki, and and I never thought Jen Psaki was the was you know the the next coming of Tony Snow or anything else like that. Um, but yes, I mean the she she at least seemed to have a little bit more on the ball than Karine Jean Pierre. But lots, but lots of people have bailed out of this administration. Uh, and that's especially show uh, uh, so and 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 squared for the vice president's office. I mean, right. you know, Kamala Harris can't keep anybody in that office. Right? You know, you be you be hearing a lot more talk, I think, about the Twenty Fifth Amendment if it wasn't for the fact that the replacement is Kamala Harris and she's a disaster. Well, uh, and see, and that's that's the thing is is so the the Brits have this thing where nobody, everybody knew that Boris Johnson could not remain, and we got to do something about him. Now, what the hell do we do? But they've got at least backups. They've got people they can plug into that eventually in, in a relatively short order. That's because it's a parliamentary system. Parliamentary we directly system. elect. We directly elect vice presidents. So I, there's, there's lots of there's lots of wild ass speculation about. Okay, so we got to get. We everybody knows Joe's got to go. 
but we know Kamala Harris is no better and she's, you know, potentially even worse because she's even dumber than Joe is. Um, you know, with, with Joe, it's dumb and senile with Kamala Harris. It's really dumb. Right. So we, we've got no backup plan there. So we've got to find a way to just have Kamala Harris step aside and replace her quickly with somebody competent so that we can force Biden out and have that person become vice president. The problem is that's not how any of this works. No, no. We've seen speculation like this. So remember it was in Donald Trump. They're going to force Donald Trump to resign, making Pence the president, then force him to resign after he appointed some, some but appointed Hillary Clinton to be vice president. I mean, right. It was, and, and, and the, it was and all the these problem, nonsense. And, and, and all these, all these nonsense theories, you have to, you have to remember, we have a 50, 50 Senate and only a five seat majority house. Whoever, it, let's say Kamala Harris, they convinced her that her ambition is getting in her own way. And for the sake of the country, she needs to step aside, which you know as well as I do. Never going to happen. Got, <laughs> I've got a better chance of going to the moon on the way home. Right. It, it, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. But entertain the fantasy just for giggles here. Entertain the fantasy. And she says, by gum, you're right. I'm as dumb as this desk. I have no business being in this office. I'm out of here. See everybody. Let's say she does that. So Joe Biden's going to nominate a replacement. Now, who is he going to nominate that's going to get past not just the Senate, yeah. but has to pass the House too? As well, yes. Because that's how that works. Who's, that that who's, is indeed how it works. Gonna, who's going to who's gonna, uh, uh, garner some support and pass that? Because remember, it's a 50-50 Senate, right? Right. A vice president's not going to break that tie. Nope. No, and I don't think they, I don't think it's legit for a vice president to do it, especially after she's resigned. Correct. So you've got to get one Republican on board. Who's it got to be? Mitt Romney. <laughs> he appoints Mitt Romney vice president. But if you okay, but then it won't get past the House. Nancy Pelosi. The House will that. never go for it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, for crying out loud. The House is go- is going to elect somebody that that basically committed murder in 2012. I mean, that's that's what the Democrats. Uh, yeah, were that's what the Democrats on. were offering up. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get out of the speculation here and, and get to what I think is one of the most amusing uh, iterations of the media onslaught against Joe Biden. This morning, Politico reports that progressives are very unhappy with Joe Biden, which is not news. <laughs> They've been unhappy with Joe Biden mostly because he stinks even though he's actually following most of their agenda. Uh, But they're unhappy today because of his messaging on inflation. And not because because Joe Biden's messaging on inflation is is demagogic, is is insane, none of those things. They just don't want him talking about inflation at all because it's transitory, Dwayne. It's not going to, it'll go away on its own. They... That's what they're telling Politico. Inflation would have gone away on its own. They don't need the Federal Reserve to come in and stomp all over the interest rates and 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 make things difficult because we we he's got to protect the wage gains from this hot jobs market. Um. Um. So so Democrats <laughs> want Joe Biden to not even talk about the economy because he can't message it right. So pretend the 800 pound gorilla that's that that 85 percent of the country views as their number one issue right 
just pretend it's not happening. Pretend it's not it, a thing. Yeah, pretend, pretend it's not a problem. <laughs> pretend it's like what Dick Durbin pretended it is, which is a discrete issue. Yeah, it's a discrete issue. Yes, we we played that on last night's universe. You gotta check that out on last night's universe, but uh, a discrete issue. You know, Mitch McConnell, he's just trying to focus on all these discrete issues like the economy. When we've got abortion to talk about, we've got civil rights to talk about, we've got climate change to talk about. And here, Mitch McConnell, he just wants to talk about, you know, uh, gas prices and, and discrete issues like the economy. Um so we, you and I took a look at the Monmouth poll. Harvard Harris is just as is just as solid on this too. The Monmouth poll that came out on Tuesday, right? Right. This these are the the ranking of the most important issues in the Monmouth poll. Thirty three percent inflation, fifteen percent gas prices, nine percent economy, which is inflation, right? And six percent bills and which gross. Which is inflation, right? It's all inflation, right? So you're talking right now. You're talking. Um, 63% of Americans have the economy in one form or another as their and top issue. Down, and then go down to where it says rent and housing, which is another uh, 2%. Yes, true. Rent and housing. Guess what that also is? That's also inflation. Yeah, very clearly that's, inflation. So 65%. Right. So 65%. Two out of three. And the, the next highest issue on the list is abortion at 5%. That's what they want. They want Biden to talk to the 5% of voters who are going to vote for Democrats anyway. Anyway, on that issue. And, right. and, the, and, and the inflationary stuff, it affects everybody. It affects Democrats. It affects suburban moms. It affects seniors. It affects everybody. And the Republicans are the ones that are resonating with that block of people on this yep. issue. And the Democrats want Joe Biden to just pretend it's not a thing. It's going to go away. It's transitory, Dwayne. Please, 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 Democrats, do that. <laughs> Campaign on that. It's By transitory. It's transitory. And we've had wage gains, which have been completely eroded away and then eroded this some not, more. By this inflation. is not the inflation that you, that 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 you're that that you're looking for here. This is these are the, these are Jedi mind tricks. If Jedi's were were, were mentally defective, <laughs> so yes. the mentally defective Jedi mind tricks. They're not going to. They haven't worked. I mean, they the the White House has been arguing that this is just actual growth. That they've been making wage gains. That they've been making employment growth, and that inflation is just simply a temporary condition based on Putin's price hike or whatever it is. Putin's tax increase. That you said yesterday, which was stupid. You and I they talked about that honestly, yesterday. Yes, they honestly, truly believe that if we just repeat the same lie and if we had a more disciplined president where we didn't come up with something different, if we would have just stuck to the transitory message and forced media to use the transitory message, um, <laughs> Then eventually, well, the people... media did use it until inflation kept going up. I mean, they started using the transitory thing, I think, in July or August of last yep. year. It's been almost a full year, and the media sort of dutifully reported that, well, this is a transitory thing, it has to do with some supply chain as, issues, etc. etc. Until it got to like the third or fourth out, month. As it turned out, the only thing in this whole debacle that was transitory was Joe Biden's ability to stay in the 40s in approval rating, right. And that's now it's going to be 
And now it might be his ability to stay in and, the 30s if you look and, at the civics poll. And, and the transitory maybe maybe the 30s. I'm curious how Quinnipiac is going to come out today or this week. Um, yeah, it's a good question because Quinnipiac has been a little harder on Biden. He was at 33%. Um, was it a couple of weeks ago in Quinnipiac? Yeah. Uh, civics in, in Quinnipiac have been kind of the leading indicators as to plumbing the depths of how low Joe Biden can go. Well, civics is oh, civics has always run a little uh, a little lower than um, uh, Quinnipiac and Monmouth. But, so. but both of those are usually at the at the at the lower end of the approval. Rate. Right, right, yes. So it'll be interesting to see what Quinnipiac has to say. Maybe it's already out. I don't know. I'll have to take a look. But um, but I'll keep my my eyes peeled for that. But I mean, what what this is now is that there there was already a collapse of Biden's. Uh, credibility among Republicans that happened. There was never, there was never a. There a, never really was. Yeah, among Republicans, it there, just never. There, there really wasn't a honeymoon period at all. But among independents, there were, and sure. now, and now, in independents though, and this is the, this is the kiss this, of death. Well, this is it's a kiss of death electorally for other Democrats. He's at eighteen sixty eight in a civics poll among Indies. But the real issue is that he's lost about. 13 points in approval among Democrats over the last three months. And that number continues to, to decline. So this is in, this is the final phase of a, of a credit of a confidence crisis cascade that is now finally fully infected, the, almost fully infected the Democrats. And that's the reason why you're seeing all these people running to the media to talk about how Biden's awful and everybody else would have done this better except for Joe Biden, I guess in an attempt to save the democratic brand, but my goodness, that, that's that's not a great strategy. When when you're down to when you're down to polling that shows that only seventy four percent of registered Democrats seventy so Joe Biden only has three out of four Democrats uh, still backing him. That's well, it's sixty four percent. I well, okay. in civics, it's sixty four percent. So right. it's six. It's it's almost it's it's almost four in ten Democrats his, don't. His his best poll is seventy four percent of Democrats. Well, I, I would point back to the Harvard Harris poll, Harvard right. Harris poll, which showed that 27% of Democrats think that uh, have serious doubts about Joe Biden's cognitive abilities, and 34% of Democrats think he's too old for the job. What I'm that to, to me tell, is it a big, is, is I, an even bigger I get issue. It. But what I'm saying is, is even in his best case scenario, if he's if he's down to losing one out of four registered Democrats in a 50-50 country, which supposedly we still are in a 50 50 country if you don't have near you know unanimous support within your own party you're not going to be real successful in the national election because you can't count on bringing over more than one two out of ten people on the other side so you've got to have 85 90 percent of your own base that is sticking with you to the bitter end and in a best case scenario, one out of four, he's already hemorrhaged. Yep. Yep. Well, we just, we're, we, we're going to need to wrap this up here. So uh, we need to start talking about what's going on at the, uh, in tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show, but we're going to do this again next week. We do it every week. Where do you think the civics poll is going to put Joe Biden next week? I'm going to say, I'm going to say I've got confidence. It's going to, it's going to hit 29 next week. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm thinking it's going to hit 29, uh, even though there is a chance that, um, gas prices may have softened a little bit. 
They have. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the what the numbers are next week because by by the time we get to next week, we should get the CPI numbers, right? I think so. We're going to get the jobs report tomorrow. So um... we're going to get the jobs report tomorrow. Which, if that slows down because of the Fed hammering the interest rate and uh, everybody's starting to pull back a little bit, it's going to be interesting to see if if uh, we we start to have either a flat line of jobs or we start hemorrhaging jobs again, which is going to be really bad news for the White House. Um, but the CPI number is going to come out next week, and again, that CPI number is going to reflect basically everything that happened in June, which was how many days of record gas uh, price hikes in a row? A lot, right? Yep. Yep. Um, yep. It's going to be wild to see what that CPI number is. If inflation is is still climbing as of June, but we have now flatlined on job growth, um, that's the, I mean, we, we are in the classical definition of stagflation, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, indeed. And so we'll see if that's if that's the case. I'm going to go out on the limb. I'm going to say 27%. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I see, I would like to think that we can go that low because I would like to think that even Democrats are sensible enough to realize when stuff's not working. I mean, I, I would like to think that, you know, Joe Biden could get down into single digits because everybody's looking around going, okay, what he's doing is not working. We have to do something different. Now, they may have different prescriptions of what to do different, but we can all agree that this is not working. Yep. But there are a handful of people that because Joe Biden has a D next to his name, they're they're never they're never going to turn from it because he has he, you know, he's a democrat. Um there is a floor. I don't know where that floor is. I would have honestly I my my goal was to drive him in the twenties, but I thought realistically low thirties was probably the the best you could hope for, from a, a Republican standpoint. Sure. He's he's going to get into the high twenties. I don't know. Can well, he get into low twenties? I mean, do you think he can get that low? Yeah, especially with the media piling on, and especially with Democrats avoiding him. I mean, yes, I think that I think that. I think that the decline among Democrats is real and it's going to continue. Okay. Then, then, so I'll then, say 27% then, next week. Then, then quick closing question. What number has to be hit before Democrats on the Hill go to Joe Biden and say, look, buddy, you're not running again. You're just not. I, and, I and would they, say that you're, the you're already there. I would say you're already there. It may not being be, it may not be being reported at the moment, but my oh, guess is that, that people people something are that juicy would be reported. If it I, I think that people are already quietly feeling out at least Biden's inner circle about approaching because that number's already here. That number's already here. There's no way that you run with these numbers. They may be they may want to wait until after the midterms, but by January you're going to see a robust Democratic presidential primary. And and you're gonna you're gonna see well what what. Are you going to see a Lyndon Johnson moment where he says, I'm, I will not seek or nor shall I accept? I would say it really depends on how bad the Democrats get their ass kicked in November. <laughs> if it's really bad. Yeah. yeah. I think I think Biden I think, says, I you know so what, I'm, I'm I'm tired. I'm done. Let's let's have somebody else take over. It was always my plan to be a transitional 
uh, figure anyway. Blah, 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 blah. All right. What's coming up on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show with Kurt Schlichter as Kurt's, guest host? Uh, Kurt's going to round out. Uh, since he's guest hosting, I'm sure, uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron will, uh, will, will suddenly resign or there will be, there will be <laughs> you know, some, something will happen on the world stage that we didn't anticipate. So that's, that's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, Larry Arn will be along for the third hour. Um, but you know, whatever Kurt's in, it's just, you know, you never know where we're going to go. Um, very true. We just kind of, we just kind of follow the whirlwind here. Uh, but we will follow the news, see what happens. Uh, we, if there's polling data, we will certainly have that. Um, so that's ahead after show straight ahead. I will cover, uh, all the latest breaking news. Um, it's just been kind of a wild week. All right, then. Dwayne Geronimo Patterson. Don't forget to tune in the Hugh Hewitt Show. Go to the Hughiverse, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com, troll-free web surfing experience. You'll be able to watch the show live with Kurt Schlichter. And uh, if you don't have that, be sure to listen live on your Salem Radio Network affiliate. Um, and if you can't find them on the AM radio dial, Dwayne, what should they do? Um, well, they should, uh, not bring along either Joe Biden or Boris Johnson, because apparently that's not going to get him very far. <laughs> yeah. I'd say, I'd say, don't expect a resignation, <laughs> expect a decapitation, um, in, in the UK anyway. No, uh, you know, well, ob <laughs> the obvious answer is you go to Politico and you start complaining about how, how these, uh, how these progressive, uh, you know, station managers are are ruining the market and and uh, and, and 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 at whatever whatever show they currently have on is just a transitory show. It's a transitory show. You need to get Hugh in there right away. It's a transitory it's a show. Exactly. exactly. All right. So you can do that, or you can go to HughHewitt.com and listen live off the stream there. All right, Dwayne, have yourself a great week. We'll talk again on Thursday. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, guys. All right, folks, stick around for a little bit more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. I am really happy to introduce you to my next guest, Mark Meckler, the president of conventionofstates.com, also Convention of States Action, uh, which is the... Um, a political action uh, group uh, for conventionofstates.com. Uh, if you've seen a lot of Trafalgar's polling, well, you can thank Mark Meckler because he's the guy who's partnering up with uh, Trafalgar to give us some of the really interesting polling data uh, and uh, a, a really good look, good insight into where voters are at. Mark, real pleasure to talk to you today. Man, it's great to be with you. Because Anytime I think PJ Media, I think all the way back to my beginning in politics, which is back in the Tea Party days and PJ comes out of that same era. I mean, really probably the the forerunner of pretty much everything we see now in the blogosphere, in video stuff being done in conservative media. Oh yeah. I think PJ was at the forefront of all of that. Well, PJ is one of our sites, you know, PJ is one of our affiliates. Um, yep. uh, and of course, you know, we partnered up with them on a lot of stuff and uh, over at hotair.com, we've got uh, yep. some, We've got some great stuff going on as well. And uh, we all kind of come out of that same era, right? I mean, yep. I think Hot Air launched in 2006. I wasn't with them initially. I, I joined in 2008. But it's all it's all part of that Tea Party movement. The, Absolutely. You know, uh, you know, pork busters and all that. And I have to say, Mark, uh, first off, I am uh, very jealous of your bookshelf background there. I, I like to <laughs> I like to write I like to rate my guests in terms of uh, 
you know, credibility bookshelf backgrounds. That's that's your real bookshelf, right? That's not a background. It is bookshelf. my real bookshelf. And I'll tell you, I, you can't see the whole thing. I bought the house for the library. So it's a two-story library. It's got the spiral staircase in the corner. Oh. It's got the mezzanine. First time in my life, Ed, I've had a place for all my books that are not in boxes in the garage. I, uh, I am completely jealous. I actually built this bookshelf when I bought this house. But I am completely jealous of, of your credibility bookshelf. You and you and Peter Grandish, I think, now have the, are, are are the top two for credibility bookshelves. Austin Roos actually comes in, I think, close third. I'm a distant fourth, if that. So, uh, Mark, well, I'm honored. Someday we'll have you out here to Texas. I'll give you a live tour. I'm in Texas. I moved out here a year ago. So Where are you I, based? Uh, I'm based in uh, Central Texas. You know, right right between oh. Austin and Dallas. Oh, so we're pretty close. I'm just north of Austin myself. There you go. Right, so we're going to do this for real. We are actually going to do this for real, right? Absolutely. We got to do this for real now. So one Texan to another then. Let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. All right. So let's talk about conventionofstates.com first before we get to the uh, polling stuff. Tell us a little bit about conventionofstates.com. I mean, I've I've been reading your stuff and of course, you know, uh, we have mutual friends who pass things back and forth. Uh, yep. So I know what you're what you're about, but I want to just let people know what it is that you're trying to do with Convention of States and why this is not a, uh, it shouldn't be, at least shouldn't be an exotic proposal. Yeah, so, you know, everybody who's listening would agree with the, the fact that the federal government's out of control and the fact that the federal government's been out of control under Republicans and Democrats forever. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so the, the question is, what do you do about that? And we're really blessed. The founders gave us a remedy they put it in Article 5 of the Constitution. They said, if the federal government ever becomes unresponsive, then you, the states, the people acting through the states, can call a convention of states and propose amendments to restrain federal tyranny. And so that's the second clause of Article 5. That's what Convention of States is about. It's about calling that convention to discuss things like imposing term limits, not just on Congress, but on bureaucrats and staffers and the bureaucracy generally. Uh, imposing fiscal restraints on the federal government, like a balanced budget amendment, tax and spending caps, and imposing, I think the most important part, scope and jurisdiction restraints on the federal government, saying, for example, no, you can't be involved in education or energy or healthcare, things that were always intended for the states, never intended for the federal government, but powers that the federal government's now usurped. So what Convention of States is about is about working to call that convention, and it takes 34 states to call the convention. So far, 19 states have done so, four states just in the last six months. And so we are well past the halfway mark to calling that historic convention. You know, Mark, I have to say too, I mean, when I first started hearing about this, you heard a lot about, well, it's, it'll create radical proposals and you know it'll revoke the first amendment and all blah, blah, blah. This doesn't eliminate the requirement for, the, for getting 38 states to, um, to uh, uh, ratify anything that comes out of a convention. Just because it comes out of a convention doesn't mean that the constitution has been changed. Each of the states still has to ratify whatever changes are presented to them. Yeah, that's correct. So that takes 38 states to ratify. It's an incredibly high bar. And I think the important thing for your listeners to note, Ed, is those arguments, the idea that there could be some kind of crazy runaway convention, those were invented by the radical left in America. They actually were originally invented by Chief Justice Warren Burger. That's the chief justice who gave us the now infamous and dead Roe versus Wade. And he was afraid that people were going to call a convention to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so he opined against the idea of using Article 5 of the Constitution. So you will occasionally hear conservatives say this. And 
they just need to understand that they're well aligned with Planned Parenthood and La Raza and MoveOn.org and organizations like that who oppose Convention of States. Well, and again, I mean, if you if you really want to argue that the that the Constitution uh, should have a constitutional right to you know fill in the blank, you either got to go through Congress or a Convention of States, and I think it's unusual, really, honestly, that we've always just left it to um, Congress to initiate those. Um, those constitutional amendments and it's worked i mean we the last one we passed was in 1992 which i believe that's the one that had been hanging around for close to 200 years right <laughs> yeah that was part of the original bill of rights and that was preventing congress or sorry uh yeah preventing congress from increasing its own pay during a sitting session yes and after i think it was 192 years or something like yeah. that it finally got passed because at that time they didn't put uh, time limits on on these questions they, they, traditionally now that we've done that with other amendments but i mean this is the way you do it and if you can't get it through congress you go to a convention of states and if the, if look if you're going to pass something crazy out of a convention of states it's not going to get ratified i mean so it's that's not your point though you you want to do things that are actually going to work and i think that the key point uh, at conventionofstates.com what you're trying to do mark is you're trying to find a way to get uh, constitutional limits put in place in the federal government that will restore state, uh, state um, authority, state jurisdiction. These are amendments that really should be highly sought by the states involved. And the only real impediment to this is probably Congress, which is the reason why you can't do this through through Congress itself. And this is the reason why this this option exists in the Constitution. Yeah, I think you nailed it. In fact, we know exactly why it exists, uh, because at convention, two days before the end of convention, September 15th, Colonel George Mason from Virginia stands up and he addresses the assembly. We know this from Madison's notes. And he says, we have a problem with the document. We created a document that gives the power to Congress to propose amendments, but not the people acting through the states. And then he asks, are we so naive that we believe that a government that becomes a tyranny will propose the right kind of amendments to restrain their own tyranny? Now, I wish we had video because they would have laughed, right? That right. would have been the response. We kind of know they laughed because Madison's notes reflect two Latin abbreviations, very short words, nin com, which stands for no comment. They're literally not one person objected. Then Eldridge Gary proposed this method that we now have, and that was unanimously inserted into the Constitution. So, yes. So for everybody who's, who's watching this, an Article 5 convention is not radical. It might very well produce a radical result, which the states would then be completely free to ignore. But likely, and especially the way that uh, Mark is Mark and his organization, conventionofstates.com, is approaching this, they're they're looking at amendments that specifically speak to state authority, state jurisdiction, and state interests. I myself would be a very happy would be very happy if such a convention produced the repeal of the Seventeenth Amendment. I don't think that that's where I'm not sure if that's where you're going or not, but that came up today because uh, Glenn Reynolds wrote a really fun piece about expanding the Supreme Court to 59, 59 seats. And I wasn't really sure if he was being satirical or not, which is really the, the best measure mark of, of satire is that yes. if you have to if you're guessing it's probably really good satire. But um, but my my response to that was, yeah, you're going to create a 59 seat. Supreme Court by having the states appoint one Supreme Court justice each, that sounds an awful lot like the Senate before the 17th Amendment. So maybe the better idea is to let the Supreme Court focus on the rule of law and get rid of the 17th Amendment so that the states could have 
uh, you could have the balance of interests in Congress again between the people and the states and the federal government. You know, it's funny that you say you don't know if that's where we're headed. I mean, if I could wave my magic wand and make one amendment go away, it would be the 17th Amendment. And for your listeners who don't know what that's about, I don't feel bad, by the way, because I, as a lawyer, didn't know anything about this until just a few years back. So we used to directly elect our U.S. or not directly elect our U.S. senators. In other words, the state legislatures would appoint the senators to the United States Senate. And there was a reason for that. What it allowed the states to do was to have absolute control as a state, as an entity over their senators. So if a senator went to Washington and did something insane, like say voted for an unfunded mandate, the state in Trumpian fashion could say you're fired, right? And bring them home. And we've lost that. So now what happens is the US senators, instead of being loyal to their states back home, they're actually loyal to the federal government. They are federal employees paid by the federal government, not in control of the states. And it's ridiculous anyway. One senator can't represent millions upon millions of people. It's a system that makes no sense. Now to the practical side of it, Ed, uh, while I would like to repeal the 17th Amendment, I think it's a stretch. And the reason yeah. I think it's a stretch, I mean, imagine going to the American people and saying, hey, we'd like to remove your right to vote for your senators. It just doesn't sound good. But here's here's an alternative that I would propose. What if we give the state legislatures the right of recall over senators? So while they don't necessarily get to directly appoint them, if a senator veers wildly off the track, they can bring them home and call for a new election. I think that's plausible that we could get that through. That's interesting. It's an interesting proposal. But right now you're mostly focused on jurisdictional issues of federal government. Uh, maybe, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, uh, the, the Constitution, relimiting interstate commerce to a more um, uh, literal uh, interpretation of that, uh, paring down the, the bureaucracy so it's not in, in areas that it shouldn't be, such as the Department of Education, which you, which you mentioned earlier. Uh, that's that's primarily and the balanced budget amendment and spending caps, which is primarily what you've been uh, focusing on. Yeah, what we're really focused on are what the American people care about. That's part of when we put this project together. What mattered to me is I'm a grassroots guy, so I want to know what regular people care about. They know the federal budget is out of control. They know that spending and borrowing are out of control. We have to do something about it. And D.C. never will for over 30 years, maybe 35 years. If you poll people on the idea of a balanced budget amendment, it's an 80, 85% issue, but Congress will never do that to itself. So the people have to impose that. The same is true for term limits. If you poll people on term limits, again, it's been polled for decades, 80, 85% issue. People think there should be term limits on Congress. Today, they particularly love the idea of term limits on the deep state bureaucrats and staffers, but Congress will never do that to itself. So when you have issues like this that are hot button issues with the American people, and Congress will not address these issues. That's why Article 5 exists. Mark Meckler, of course, at conventionofstates.com. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, the, the, the so-called constitutional right that was revoked over the uh, uh, last week or so. Um, I mean, I guess it was just, it was a week and a half ago, right? Uh, or yeah, was about it, a week and a half ago, yeah. Okay, all right. Time flies when you're when you're feeling free. <laughs> Came out I on guess. a Friday, so that's a week and a half almost. Exactly. There you go. Yeah, and then we had a holiday in between and all that kind of stuff. So a week and a half has passed since Roe v. Wade, and uh, you know you, you've done some, you've taken a look at some polling on here through Trafalgar. I'm sure you've seen other polls on this yep. as well, and I have. You've also seen some primary results, some turnout models from primaries and that sort of thing. What is the what do you think the electoral impact is is has been in the polls that you've um, 
that you've sponsored about the repeal or excuse me, the revocation of uh, Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs decision? I mean, first of all, I, I want to do you're a, a narrative guy, right? You you sure, write, sure. you you do podcasts. So I think how we talk about it really matters. And as a conservative, it really matters to me. And so I want to be really clear. The left is saying that a constitutional right has been revoked. And they're absolutely wrong about that. It's That's the exact true. opposite. A yeah. constitutional right has been restored, which is the right of the people to self-determination in the states on issues that were not meant to be delegated to the federal government by the Constitution. So the idea that there is some right to abortion in the Constitution was a fallacy created by the Burger Court in 1973. So really what we've done is it's an incredible watershed moment for freedom. It's the restoration of the right of the people of the states to decide on something that was never intended to be decided by the Constitution. So I just want to make sure that we frame the narrative up correctly that way as conservatives. I, I think you're right about that. I think you're absolutely right. And I'm glad you I'm glad you put it that way. I also think it's a it's a restoration of a very specific limitation on the Article Three branch of government, right? Um, this is in, in the Burger Court, wasn't the first time that this happened, of course. The Burger Court, though, took it upon itself to usurp legislative authority to create a policy, a social policy, no less, um, in its Roe and Doe decisions in 1973. The 1992 court did the same thing with Casey, um, basically extending uh, their legislative um, pursuits. The What I liked about the, the Dobbs decision is that Alito speaks very specifically about this particular issue, about their about the constitutional limitations of the Article Three branch, and that this is uh, and that and how this has actually perverted the politics of America at the federal and state levels for decades now, because of that irrigation of um, legislative authority from Congress and the states. Actually, primarily the states is what Alito is arguing too, but. I'm, I'm glad you framed it that way, because I think that not only did did this restore a right to the people and the states, but it also self-limited the, the, the Article 3 branch back to what its definition is, is supposed to be under the Constitution. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of that from this court, so I'm very excited about what the future holds for this particular Supreme Court. When you go out to the public, though, and you start to pull this thing, I think, look, abortion is a it's a divisive issue in the United States which means by nature it's something better handled in my opinion at the state level and i think there there is not really a clear majority in any particular way with this exception the vast majority of americans believe in some pretty significant restrictions in the third trimester and that we know and so what's really interesting to me about that is you have states that are now saying basically even constitutionally we're going to ensconce no restrictions on abortion whatsoever People who are doing that, legislatures that are doing that, they're very out of touch with the American people. And that includes, by the way, Democrats. They're out of touch with the majority of Democrats. Most people, it just seems barbarous to them to have abortions during the third trimester, except maybe under very limited circumstances. And so I think the American people are largely in agreement there. When you get into the second trimester, it's a pretty good split. It depends on exactly how you word the question. But I think this is kind of where the electorate kind of splits apart. And then you get into the first trimester and you have a significant minority that are in favor of restrictions even in the first trimester. So I think what you see is a sliding scale of American public opinion. Now, how's that all fall out electorally? I would say almost nowhere. <laughs> right. When you look right. at it, the people who are really hyper pro 
uh, I don't even call it pro-abortion, pro-baby killing. Those folks are always voting Democrat. They're always going to vote Democrat. If you're that hyped up about the idea of killing babies, you already vote. You're not going to be driven out to vote by this. This is not a new issue that's going to make you vote. The same is true on the other end of the spectrum. If you are a radically pro-life person as I am, you already vote. You're not thinking about voting. You don't vote sometimes. You probably vote every time. And frankly, Ed, the people in the middle who are like, mm, maybe maybe something in the second trimester, not really sure, it's not their issue. They just don't think about it that much. And so when you look at the overall polling, what you see is maybe 5% of voters are gonna be driven by this in one way or another. I think it's gonna be basically an equal split. And what people are gonna be paying attention to is it's impossible to fill their car with a tank of gas right now. Well, right. I mean, and this is, I think this is part of the mistake that both the media and Democrats are making. And there's, there's a bunch of reporting out. We're, we're, we're recording this on, on a Tuesday. There's a bunch of reporting out from CNN and Politico and some other um, media outlets today talking about how Democrats are frustrated that this, that this administration wasn't prepared for this moment, even though if you, if you knew anything about what the oral <laughs> arguments were back in December, you knew how this thing was going to end up. It was well, and we had a leaked opinion, right? Right, right. At the beginning of May, May 3rd, if you couldn't figure out when to start responding to this, the, the leak on May 3rd probably should have been the big signal. Um, and I think that the, I think that what's going on here is that Democrats, and when I say Democrats, I'm not really talking about the voters. I'm talking about Democratic leadership, right? Beltway leadership, especially have been so immersed in their epistemic closure. Remember, we used to talk about epistemic closure on the right. They've been so immersed in their own epistemic closure that they just absolutely knew that overturning Roe would, would touch off a voter revolt. And, you know, it, it's possible that that could have been true if everything else in the world was good, right? If you had inflation under control, if you really had full employment, um, I would argue that we're not there because I, I, I don't trust the, um, the workforce statistics. We still not, haven't recovered all the jobs that we lost in, in the pandemic yet. We're about a million short of that. Um, if everything was good, gas prices were low, you didn't have a war in, in Europe and all this kind of stuff, and the southern border was under control and you had an energy policy that made sense, abortion may have moved the needle. This may have been a big enough shock to the system where it may have moved the needle. That is clearly not 2022 though, Mark. No, it's not in our politics or interwoven two, I would say three actually primary issues. I mean, number one is just Pain at the pump, inflation, grocery prices. People are really struggling out there. And interestingly, this is the hardest one for DC to understand because they're not, right? A lot right. of these folks don't drive cars. Uh, if you think about the salaries that they make in Congress, uh, what they're paid, they don't understand the pain that people are feeling. They don't understand any of the economic stuff that is so visceral to the average American. So I think one, that's going to drive it. Number two is all the social critical race issues, the teacher transparency issues, all the stuff that we as conservatives, not just conservatives, but just parents found out during the pandemic, that's gonna drive stuff because parents are angry as hell and they're gonna go to the polls and they're gonna go to polls younger and in numbers before that we've never seen before on the conservative side. And when I say on the conservative side, I mean voting conservative, not necessarily conservatives 
but they're mad about what's being done to their yep. children. And then the final piece of it is on the foreign affairs piece. It's just a mess. Nobody liked what happened in Afghanistan. We saw Joe Biden's poll numbers plummet in the aftermath of Afghanistan, as they should have. They've stayed down and only gone lower since. They look at his weakness on the world stage in the face of Russian aggression. I think it's easy to make the argument and connect the dots. We have Russian aggression in Ukraine because of what Joe Biden did. And now, unbelievably, he's doing worse. I, I don't understand it. So, in other words, he's told people, well, we were weak up front. And so that's why the Russians attacked, though he said sanctions would work. And then they didn't work. And then he said they still work. And now he says that we should suffer as much as he says we should suffer so that we can prop up Ukraine. So it's like on in every way you can play this thing wrong, politically, foreign policy wise, economically, he's playing it wrong from every direction. It's going to hurt him at the polls. You know, Mark, I, I got to tell you, I wasn't going to get into it too deep on on on, on Biden's incompetence. I, I have a particular phrase I like to use to describe Joe Biden through the ages. Um, and uh, since this is a podcast, I can actually use this. If I if, if we were on FCC, I, I wouldn't have been able to get away with this, but I've always considered Joe Biden to be 20 pounds of bullshit in a 10 pound bag anyway. <laughs> but that's a great, that's an excellent, uh, I'll never forget that visual. I appreciate that. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, but today in the New York Times, again, this is being, we're recording this on Tuesday. Um, in the New York Times, I'll tell you how far the man has fallen. There is a New York, a really interesting New York Times piece out today uh, with all sorts of experts talking about how Joe Biden is getting everything wrong uh, in inflation, economic policy, even the energy policy, all of this. And do you know the experts are who are telling the New York Times this today? Former advisors of Jimmy Carter. <laughs> now, how bad... <laughs> It doesn't get any worse, right? <laughs> it can't get any worse than that, right? Am I right? Well, look, those guys are celebrating because they were part of the worst presidency in modern American history, and now they've been relegated to only the second worst. Yeah, right. They're out of they're out of the cellar. <laughs> it's yeah. It's it's yeah, they're, they're 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 not into the they're not into the first division yet, but at least they're out of the cellar. Um, well, so look, when you're the New York Times and you're reporting against President Biden, when you're actually recording, reporting reality and talking about all the things that he's doing wrong, that is an extraordinary statement in and of itself. Yep. They've lost, this administration has lost the New York Times and much of the left. And part of it, by the way, is, is not stuff that we would agree with. It's not because people think that they should be so conservative. A lot of times it's because they're saying Biden isn't being radical or leftist enough so I think that puts the administration in a real conundrum. Well, I mean, what do they do about that? Well, I think you're right about that, Mark. Um, and I should mention really quickly over at uh, conventionofstates.com, the latest, you can go to convention conventionofstates.com. It's like literally the biggest link on there, the latest. Um, but um, but if you go to conventionofstates.com slash latest, you can get there as well. And uh, you talk about how Joe Biden's liberal world order, a, a phrase that made me cringe because I knew how it was going to be received. Um uh, makes a perfect case for convention of states. This sounds like a conspiracy theory, but unfortunately it's real. You know, <laughs> I, I just think that this administration is so toned. I mean, you can talk about the, you can talk about the Western order. You can talk about, you know, the, the, the environment of, you know, liberal democracy in, in the West. And those are all fine. 
But when you start talking about liberal world order or new world order, just from a messaging point of view, it's a disaster. And then put on top of that, how much of that we should be imposing? And you're right. You've got the Convention of States saying, what, what's, your, what's, what's the response, the Convention of States response to this specifically? I mean, to this specifically, it's just like, do you need anything more? Like, I, don't, I mean, it's, Ed, I get people who are conservatives who oppose this. And it used to be, it used to kind of frustrate me. And I'd have to walk them through the arguments for and against now, you know, back then. And now I just look at them and say, do you, do you not have access to the internet? Do you, do you not know who's in the White House? Are you, are you not following the news? Because if now isn't the time to take the power away from the federal government forcefully and give it back to the states, then when when will that time be? It will never, there's never going to be a time. I never expected in my lifetime, certainly not 11, 12 years ago when I got engaged in politics, I never imagined that I could be living in a time when we literally had Marxists at the highest level of our nation's government. When we literally, I, Paul, I'm gonna be so politically incorrect, we had men dressed as women at the highest levels of the United States government who were supposed to call women because apparently we live in some sort of, I, I don't even know what a Lord of the Rings. Hobbit through the looking grass, through the, no, yeah. Alice in Wonderland. Alice, whatever. As, as a Lord of the Rings fan, my friend, I rebuke you. <laughs> hey, you know what? In my opinion, everybody smart in politics is a Lord of the Rings fan. My ah, wife and I just go. finished watching the whole series again. It's our politics, right? What the goal here for those, I apologize for geeking out on Lord of the Rings. If you're a fan, you'll know what I'm talking about. The entire pursuit, the reason I'm in politics is to try and destroy the ring of power. That's it. People get that ring and they think they're all powerful and they think they can do good stuff with it and they end up destroying the nation. Our job is to destroy the ring. And metaphorically speaking, when we destroy the ring with Convention of States, what we do is take the power away from federal government and give it back to the people in the states. I don't think there's a better way to sum this up, actually, than with that statement. Mark Meckler, conventionofstates.com. You got to go with the Lord of the Rings metaphor. I think. I think absolutely. That's, isn't that isn't that like the the sine qua non of 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 summations right there? I think that's the mic drop moment. <laughs> there you go, mic drop. Uh, Mark Meckler, where else can people, you know, what social media contacts do you have? I mean, you know, Facebook, Twitter, where else can people yeah, find they you? Can do find Convention, Convention of States on any of those. And then I would say, if you want to get a little bit more intimate, if you want to know about the family or hobbies or stuff that I care about, sometimes outside of politics, that's just go to markmeckler.com. Markmeckler.com, conventionofstates.com. Look for the social media outlets on all of that. And by the way, keep keep looking for their uh, sponsored polls from Trafalgar because they are very informative. Trafalgar, of course, is a uh, a very well-rated pollster in the 538 um, uh, polling uh, grading system. I think it's an A minus, right? I think it's it's. Yeah, it's, they're actually America's most accurate pollster since 2016. And so Robert Haley and Trafalgar, it's pure genius, and we work with them to give the American people a voice in in politics. Exactly. So keep an eye out there, conventionofstates.com. You will find out more uh, about whatever's going on and what you can do about it, even more importantly, what everybody can do about it. Mark Meckler, thanks for being with us today. Hey, and we need to, we'll get together for barbecue sometime soon too, right? We got to do that. We got to do that. You know, I've got a, I've got a smoker in my backyard because when I moved to Texas, I, I heard it was a requirement. So it is a requirement. We And we got a bass fishing stream out front. So we got, we got a little match made in heaven here. Uh, okay. So 
before we before we cut this off, I just have to I have to let you know what my philosophy of fishing is. My philosophy of fishing is that you drop a hook in the water, put a, a hat over your face, have a beer, and fall asleep. That's my idea of fishing. It's the it's the no frills fishing. As long I'm as you're exactly comfortable with the that. same. The kids the kids love it. For me, it's a good excuse to drink a beer and listen to the stream rush by. There you go. See, we're we're on the same page on everything. I think Mark Meckler again, conventionofstates.com. Thanks again. Thank you, Ed. Stand by for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. Welcome back. Joining the Ed Morrissey Show podcast next is Vermont's U.S. Senate candidate, Myers Mermel. You can find out more at MyersMermel.com, M-Y-E-R-S-M-E-R-M-E-L.com. And that's where his campaign website is. But hey, you can just find out right now because... Myers is with us. Myers, great to have you on board. Uh, nice to nice to be aboard, sir. <laughs> and uh, love the bookshelf. Um, uh, so you know, I, I'm I'm always jealous of other people's uh, credibility bookshelves. It's uh, that's really nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the uh, it's the side effect of two Ivy League master's degrees in history and theology. Um, and I really I love my library and I love my books. Um, but that's only one part of my education. You know, as Republicans, we have our formal education and then we have our real world education. That's so right. I've been a, that's right. a businessman for 35 years. Actually, there's a fellow up here that's running uh, against our Republican governor primary who doesn't have a college degree, but probably makes more sense than many of the politicians out there with all kinds of degrees. So, um, you know, a lot of the issues that we're confronting today are longstanding issues that can be solved with common sense rather than ideology. And in Vermont, we, we just get wave upon wave. You know, it's it's kind of the few Republicans against the progressive machine up here that that continues to put out new initiatives based on ideology, but not on the will of the people and not not for the benefit of the people. Right. And Vermont's a tricky state, right? For it, it is it has conservative roots, but the politics mm -hmm. tend to be more progressive. And so it takes, you know, it, it takes a Vermonter to understand um, how to navigate that. Tell us a little bit about yourself, first off. Uh, tell us, uh, you know, uh, tell us a little bit about your biography. And I understand that there was a, a stop at the White House for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, a short stop. Um, so uh, I have deep roots in Vermont. My fourth great grandfather fought uh, alongside the Green Mountain Boys and helped found the state, as you as you may know, Vermont fought two revolutions at once, one against the Yorkers who wanted to claim their land and the other against Great Britain. Um, and I actually have my second great grandmother was an indentured servant to the governor in the middle of the 19th century for 20 years. She went into servitude at age five. Uh, we're a farm family, half my family's farmers, half are physicians. You know, half of us take care of the earth, half of us take care of the, the people. And um, I was born uh, on a U.S. Navy base in Sasebo, Japan. My father worked for the, the Navy, the State Department, the CIA. And um, I was born abroad and first came to Vermont um, to go to college, where I graduated from UVM. And <laughs> so in college, I decided that I would try to do as much as, you know, I've been relatively academic before coming to college. And I thought, you know, I really need to, to build leadership and do as much as I can. I want to be the most valuable player when I leave this place. 
And I ended up president of the Senior Merits Honor Society. I lost for student body president by 14 votes out of 4,000. I don't know who those 14 people are. I'm sure they're regretting it today. <laughs> um, but I, I'm probably the only person who remembers. Actually, what's funny is I meet people and they think I was elected, right? And they congratulate me on serving a good term. That's how important the role is. But in any event, so um, I, I, um, I was hired by... Um, by George H.W. Bush when he was vice president to be one of his White House interns. And um, I ended up working mostly in the press office, but uh, spent some time in the OEO, in the West Wing, but also the old executive office building. And to be there when, you know, you're 19 or 20 years old is really a lot of fun. Oh, man. Because you know, you're not really responsible for anything. And, um, you know, but you get to tag along and, uh, you know, you help out and get the coffee. My job then was officially to get the vice president, the Washington Times, which was uh, owned by the Moonies, which was kind of seen as a, a very revolutionary cult. And, but they had the only conservative newspaper in town. So I would spend my own money and at 530 in the morning, get the paper and then come in and lay it on his desk so it would be there uh, when he was ready for it. But um, it's so crazy, you know, you learn. So I went on, on trips with him to Texas and other places. And, um, you know, there's just to, just to give you a vignette, you know, as you're 20 years old, you fly in an Air Force Two and uh, you, you disembark and, and we landed at Dallas Love Field and there's nobody like Texans, right? Right. Who, who love their president and love, uh, you know, kind of the formality and parade of it. And there was a whole line of double line of uh, police officers on motorcycles and then a motorcade. So I got into the third car and we took off. And I mean, we really, uh, we were moving 80, 90 miles an hour and they had shut down the freeways, you know, into Dallas. And then you'd be in this motorcade and you just and it's all these motorcycles just peeling off, going around, shutting things down. You know, and I, I'm just a kid, right? I'm just looking at it like, wow, this is unbelievable. You know, and then we finally pull into the hotel and we, we go down into this, um, you know, underground uh, parking garage, the doors open, we run in, we're going through you know, the kitchen, you know, Vice President Bush is waving, hola, amigo, hola, amigo, right? They're all you know, saying in Spanish, oh, Mr. Vice President, you know, and so he runs out and then all of a sudden these two doors open and I'm right behind the Vice President I'm like blinded. It's this gigantic room, which is all blue. And I think it was like the National Bakers Convention or something oh, like that. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. They're like, there are many, many bakers in the world and they were all there <laughs> and there were thousands of bakers and they were all up on their feet and they were clapping. I was like, wow, it's unbelievable. It's just, it was unbelievable. Then the vice president, you know, gave his standard speech. And uh, at that time we had shot down a plane in the Gulf of Sidra. I remember that. Yes. Yeah. I remember that incident. Uh, and, you know, people were so nationalism had come back under Reagan. I mean, after, after we had that sad defeat you know, with Carter trying to rescue the hostages. So when he mentioned that, I mean, the whole place just went wild and um, it really, it, it was just a, an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, as a Patriot, you just love to be close to that and see that, but what was most impressive to me is to see the love of country in people's faces. Right. And how much this country means to people. 
and how their hopes and dreams are, you know, intertwined with these ideas that we have, right, of liberty and justice and freedom, right, and, you know, freedom of conscience, and and it's very palpable. But anyway, so that was my my college career, which is unrelated to anything I'm doing today. But well, but I mean, it's it's formative, right? I mean, this is part of who you are, and I just think yeah. it's an interesting uh, way to get to, you know, your political engagement these days. I mean, you've obviously you've had a very, you know, you've had a, um, a, a very diverse set of experiences since then. Right. Um, you're coming back to politics, though, and uh, and running for the U.S. Senate in Vermont. And again, the website, right. again, is MyersMormel.com. M-Y-E-R-S. M-Y-E-R-S. M-E-R-M-E-L. Yeah. And make sure you spell it right, because otherwise you don't get to it. But actually... I think Google will spell it for you. There's nobody close to me. Yeah, right. Google. Google. Just Google it. You'll find out. We'll also have the link up in the eventual show post here as well. But you came back around. I mean, you've been a successful businessman. You've been through... You know, theological education. Uh, You've done all sorts of different things. Why electoral politics now? What What is the need in Vermont and in the in the U.S. Senate that you're that you're seeing right now? You know, um, and this may seem like an unusual thesis, but um, over the past couple of years, I've been very concerned about the divisions that I've seen, and I was worried about a civil war happening four or five years ago because I'm very much part of the Republican conservative base. I mean, I worked for Mike Huckabee on his 2008 campaign. Um, I stayed very close to conservative figures and donated money. And, um, you know, over the past couple of years, as these divisions have just gotten worse and worse, and both sides really now are are so um, pitted against each other, you know, it's almost as if we're in the second American Civil War, right? That Seattle was Sumter and January 6th was Bull Run. And, um, you know, I, there, as a, an historian reading about the early years of the first civil war, there was a tremendous enthusiasm for conflict, just like we have now. And this idea that the conflict would be righteous and would be <clears throat> um, cleansing. But unfortunately, you know, they talk about the early funerals they had and, and how much they lauded the people who were early, the earliest sacrificed. But then they found that the absolute uh, gore of these large mass engagements and the terror was just much more than they anticipated. And I mean, I can see ourselves slipping more and more into violence. And, you know, the the mob is not what the founders intended us to use to resolve our differences. I mean, and so just to sort of cut. So, so that's what's on my heart. But so why did I show up? Well, I was told by the state party in January. I'm not the state party favorite because I'm a conservative, right? The state party wants to be Democrat. So they want they have their favorite candidate is is indistinguishable from the Democrat who's running. I mean, the same positions. Um, So they didn't want me to show up. So they told me I didn't need to show up. But then it dawned on me that that person was it was not personally pro-life. Uh, did not observe the, you know, the Constitution, was not conservative, didn't believe in Second Amendment rights. So I thought, you know, th- this is the time. If I'm called to do something, I, I, I ought to do this. And um, I ought to do this now because the state needs it. And the state needs to have a balance. We used to have a balance of, of fe- on our federal level before Leahy got elected. 
250 years ago, we had another, I'm just kidding. It just seems like 48 years ago, we had George Aiken, who was a wonderful Vermont uh, senator. But yes, I mean, our politics has moved left, but there, there is a huge bulk of people. There may be two thirds of, there could be, I don't know, 60% of us are basic Republicans, but of that um, two thirds, maybe half of them don't vote. Right. Have given up and think that nothing will change. And it's kind of like Eeyore, you know, oh, well, progressives have ruined the day, right? Right. Nothing I can do. And I'm trying to, to, to talk to them and motivate them to, to come out in, in August and show them that we can, we can perform and that we can win. You know, it's interesting because Pat Leahy is retiring, right? So there's a real opening here for a change of pace. This is not the, um, because, I mean, even even if you had to go after Bernie Sanders in a, in a challenge, it, it's always difficult to dislodge an incumbent. But when an incumbent retires, there's always an opportunity for a uh, some sort of introspection on the part of an electorate and a decision about, which direction that that electorate wants to go in. And so I think it's incumbent on parties to make sure that they provide a choice, right? That there's a, that there's some sort of real choice between the two parties that's based on policy. I wouldn't even say ideology, right? Myers, I'd say mm -hmm. based on policy and, and values more than ideology, uh, rather than just try to uh, be a, a pale shadow of the other party. I mean, this in both directions, right? Um, and but so I think very much like a conservative. I hope you understand that. <laughs> well, I'm outing myself right now as a conservative. <laughs> How dare you speak that way? I know. Um, the problem is in this state is that a, a large number of people in the party, our governor is is quite liberal. Yes, uh, and he's a Republican, but you know he put in a. A, a George Soros backed prosecutor into our largest county who's not prosecuting criminals. And now that now they've got many more incidents of gun violence, they've got people waving guns around and shooting each other, which had never happened before. So, you know, to your to your point, what do we have, um, you know, if we don't carry values and our policies forward? I mean, just having somebody compete in the, it's like having another Democrat primary. Well, and I mean, you mentioned guns, and I know that's part of your your platform. I mean, obviously, this is a, a very acute issue at the moment. Vermont's a really interesting study in that. I mean, Vermont was for a long time, I think, maybe the only state that had so-called constitutional carry. Right? I, I live in Texas now. Uh, moved here a year ago, uh, and they have it as well. They just passed it, but Vermont was really the first state that had it, and it had it for decades. I'm not. I'm not even sure that they ever really required a permit in, in Vermont right. at any point in time. And you never heard about gun violence there. And there are a lot of there are a lot of law abiding gun owners in Vermont. You didn't have those issues because it was also a state that respected the rule of law and enforced the law and prosecuted people who got crosswise with the law. So you didn't have to worry about uh, these things escalating. And I think that your point here on this focus on decarceration, which really began a few years ago and has accelerated with these district attorney elections, and uh, it's really taken us in the wrong direction and violently in the wrong direction. What I don't understand on the defund movement, and I haven't heard from the left, I, I know that they want to pursue a higher moral purpose in this. Right? Yeah. They feel that there's a group of people who are unjustly 
um, punished by society from, from the systems and processes society set up, right? That systemic racism and, um, you know, that, that we need to do more to try to bring justice to those people that the system is, has convicted them. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that. I believe that prejudice resides in people. It doesn't reside in the systems. But um, I don't understand what the moral high ground, what the moral purpose of, of defunding is. It seems to expose low and moderate income people to more crime and not less. Right. And I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, failing to punish the offender even helps the offender. Right. So, I mean, I, and I moved to Texas from the Twin Cities in Minnesota, so I kind of had a ringside seat for some of this. Well, no, I mean, do you know their argument? What is their, what is their argument? Their argument is that um, communities can police themselves, that most of the things that police get involved in are really social mm -hmm. issues and really should have social workers dealing with it. Um, that is a very, very hypothetical construct and unfortunately, a number of urban centers have tried to put that into place by taking funding away from actual law enforcement and investing it in, in social welfare uh, infrastructure. And it's not to say that social welfare infrastructure shouldn't have some sort of investment, um, but you that really needs to be a, an investment that takes place when law enforcement has stabilized a, uh, a community right? Where you have a, a certain stability and a certain, um, uh, a certain improvement in, in the crime rate. And instead what that's done is it's touched off a, a crime wave to the point now where a lot of the people who were talking about defunding the police are now saying right. that they never supported it and that, no, of course we need law enforcement and, and so on and so on. Um, one gets the impression that this, that these aren't actual uh, firm commitments by some of these politicians, but simply, putting fingers to the wind uh, over the last couple of years and trying to ride, you know, populist waves. And that brings us to the, the larger point of populism, right? Is that you get these sort of wild policy swings mm -hmm. um, when populist impulses are, are really unleashed, most of which don't turn out very well. And that's, and, and the, the structure of the American form of government, especially at the federal level was designed to, um, buffer against that type of populism and the u.s senate was a key part of that and i'm wondering as a u.s senate candidate how you see yourself um taking on the role of u.s senator uh with that in that sense with that in mind talking about you know calming tensions down talking about uh trying to avoid conflicts that, that mm -hmm. i mean there's always gonna be conflicts because there's always policy debates but i mean i'm talking about you know violent conflicts um, you know, uh, disagreement to the point of hatred, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering how you see um, your role as both a Senate candidate and as a prospective U.S. Senator. Okay. But before we leave our little topic, I do want sure. to spend just maybe half a minute. One of what I'm seeing in Vermont is, yes, politicians now on the left are saying your funding doesn't work, but now they're pushing and actually passed with the signature of the governor, a study commission and then recommendation for the removal of qualified immunity. And as I've spoken to, right, as I've spoken to dozens of rank and file police officers, as well as leadership, who's been kind enough to call me back on an anonymous basis, 
uh, everybody has agreed that 40 to 50% of the force will immediately resign. Absolutely. Because they can't force bankruptcy. I mean, I've had some cops say, it's one thing if I get killed in the line of duty, my family will be protected. You know, they'll be cared for. But if, if we go, if we're all bankrupt, because I'm bankrupted by two or three lawsuits, then what do I have? So they'll all leave. And um, I, that's catastrophic to funding. And people don't realize it, but they talk about it as if it's, uh, you know, if it's nothing. Um, but let's get to the, the, so so we know that we're in a very divisive time. You know, how do we restore calm? One of the things that, that, that I say and repeat is that I love Donald Trump and that I love Bernard Sanders. And what does it mean for me to say that, right? What does it mean for you to say that? Right. And what does it mean for all of us to say that, right? And as a Christian, I believe that everybody needs uh, compassion and forgiveness, right? And we need to start at that level uh, of trying to find what we, we have in common instead of what's different. One of the reasons that I have new ideas on my, you know, I call myself a new conservative, is to try to take the focus away from the old fights and, and help us to look at new ideas. Um, like they're wasting money on building fiber here when they should be going with Starlink, but to take the focus away from some of the bad ideas and show progress and hopefully show commonality. But I think as a Senator, it's very incumbent upon me to be uh, measured and appropriate and have the right tone and not to engage in partisan bickering. I mean, as we know, the Senate was, was the ultimate deliberative body and you know supposedly the 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 welfare the best interest right and the welfare of the people should reside in those in the senate and um i i see a lot of senators doing that um and trying their very best to uphold that um and and that's the essence of our our democratic values so uh, i would i would like to be among those but i also see at the same time you know, a lot of conflict. And I would try to work behind the scenes to, to take that down a notch. So, I mean, and that's, I mean, I, I completely get what you're saying about, you know, I, I, we should love our friends, our enemies, our neighbors as ourselves. Absolutely. Right. And I think that we have to learn how to have conversations rather than shouting at each other. There's too much shouting at each other. There's not enough conversation going on. I completely agree with you on that. And the Senate really is a good place to do this, right? Because the Senate is, you know, the the, the saucer of of democracy, right? That's the you know, that's that was the that was the uh, it's always been the um, the allegory that I've been taught. You know, it's the it's the cooling saucer of that that cools the passions, and and that's the reason why it's considered the it's supposed to be yeah it's supposed to be the greatest deliberative body. Unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't actually live up to that billing. Um, but I think it's important to come into it with that particular point of view. Now, um, we don't have too much time left because it's okay. been so interesting talking about philosophy here that maybe we should get you back in, in a couple of weeks to talk a little bit more about the issues. But Okay, I'd love to give, come back. Give me, a, uh, give me a, a, one particular issue in which you, um, for, that, that relates to your run in U.S. Senate and in, in your mm -hmm. campaign. That demonstrates your your conservative approach, your conservative yet realistic and open approach. Uh, <laughs> uh, whatever you, whatever you think is the most important issue that you're you're running on right now in Vermont. Well, the most important one, obviously, is inflation, and, and then followed behind by with crime. But to pick an unusual issue, but just to to show how I'm trying to shed light in different areas on the broadband issue, 
Vermont lags all of its neighbors and probably the rest of the country. I think it, it ranks near the very bottom of, of all states in terms of broadband service. And that hurts bringing in new people, especially as the new paradigm in, in the work world, especially in the urban centers in New York and Boston, is work from home and return percentages will probably be only 60%. There's a vast number of people that will start working from home. Those people could live in Vermont and could pay taxes here, right? And have very low impact, but you know, lower the tax base, which is exactly what we want. And they could bring higher paying jobs, which is exactly what they want. But dozens, of, I've heard literally from dozens of them and some who spent 25 or 50,000 to get broadband service for their own houses. But a lot of people can't afford that. But um, we need to have that provided. So it, it's gone on and on and on and never been solved. And finally, they had some ARPA money, American Rescue Plan money, about half a billion dollars worth 550 million. And they made the decision to uh, install fiber to every person's house. Now, fiber is a backwards looking technology. It mm -hmm. is obsolete now. It's almost as if Vermont said, wow, Henry Ford, you invented an automobile. Let's, let's buy all the buggy whips we can find, right? So they're installed. <laughs> you can't make this up. Right. So what I'm saying is in the Yankee tradition, let's be prudent about what we're spending. So if we took this $550 million and, I, and no one has talked about this, if we took the $550 million and, and entered into a contract with Starlink and Elon Musk, right? That contract alone, we would double his subscriber base. We could probably force him to bring Tesla here, right? As a, a company, a green company. But in addition, that $550 million would pay for free service for everybody for three years. So it sounds like I'm to the left of you know communist Bernie Sanders by saying, oh, free broadband. But the fact is we've already spent the money. Why are we spending the money you know, on ditches? What would you prefer, you know, a free ditch or free service? Right. So it's just this conservative thinking of let's spend our money wisely. And it's not, it's not very sophisticated, but it's amazing how in this um, bubble that nobody questions anything, no one says anything, no one, everyone think it's just all group think. Well, and again, the website is myersmermel.com, M-Y-E-R-S-M-E-R-M-E-L.com. And he's running for U.S. Senate and uh, you can you can volunteer, you can donate over there. The The primary is coming up in August, right? I think uh, early, has early voting... August 8th and has early voting already Nine. started? Nine. August 9th. Okay. Yeah. Don't get them to the polls too early. <laughs> August 9th. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, Vermont. August 9th. I'm sorry. Don't show up. Bad I'm calendar. <laughs> the inner Democrat in you. Um, oh, no. No, no. no. Yes. Early voting's already started, but Republicans have a tendency to wait and see what happens. So they're mostly waiting to the end, uh, which is good because it gives me more time to, to be introduced to the voters and Although I've been uh, endorsed by Mike Huckabee, I'm still very much in the process of letting people know I'm, I'm really between one candidate who's, I'm re really between kind of two extreme candidates. And uh, I feel that, you know, I have Republican values, I'm conservative and I'm electable. Yeah, I mean, and this is the key point, right? Because this is something that, um, oh, um, uh, Bill, um, oh, I can't think of his name. National Review. I, 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 um, oh, Chris. Well, no, Bill Crystal, I'm sure said oh, Bill, it as well. Um, William Buckley. Uh, Buckley. William F. Buckley. William F. Buckley said, which is that you you vote for the most electable conservative 
that you have in an election. And, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've gotten a ringside seat to this a couple of times uh, in California um, and again in Minnesota, where uh, you had conservatives that ran away from an electable candidate to to support somebody who wasn't electable. Not that those people weren't certainly worthy, but they were staking out positions that just didn't resonate with the with the rest of the state. And um, unfortunately, the result of that kind of purity campaign is you don't win the seat at all, which doesn't do which doesn't do your movement any good. Right. And and so that's something to keep in mind, too. So, Myers, it's been great talking with you. I think we got a great look at your philosophy and your approach. Um, got to look at one of the issues that are important to you. When we come back, maybe a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll revisit this right before, maybe right before the um, actual August 9th primary date. <laughs> at least I didn't say the 10th. The 10th would have been... Right. Yeah, the 10th would have been, you know... It's, Sort of like the holy hand grenade of Antioch from, you know, Monty Python, the Holy Grail thing. Um, but um, but uh, maybe you come back closer into the um, to the uh, primary date, the actual primary vote date and go over go over some of the big issues here and uh, and pin that down. This has been a great conversation and really great way to introduce you, I think. And thank you so much for spending yeah. some time with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. And I really enjoyed getting to know you better. Uh, well, thank you, sir. And MyersMermel.com, M-Y-E-R-S-M-E-R-M-E-L.com. That's where you find out more. I'm Ed Morrissey. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show coming up next. This is Ed Morrissey of HotAir.com for Town Hall. Democrats' midterm prospects continue to grow grimmer with every approval rating of Joe Biden. Voters remain focused on inflation, especially at the gas pump, and shortages at the grocery store more than any other issue. That applies especially to abortion, although Democrats have yet to realize it. Leaders of the party assume that overturning Roe would result in a massive voter revolt. According to NBC News, Biden and his team believe that it will rescue them in the upcoming midterms. However, despite the leak of the Dobbs decision in May, the issue of abortion has not impacted any primaries over the last two months. Why? Even after the Supreme Court made the Roe revocation official, the abortion issue has remained a low priority to voters, as low as 5% in this week's poll for Monmouth. Biden and Democratic leadership are trapped in the closed-mindedness they like to accuse their opponents of. They have grown deaf to the real concerns of American households. Their midterm roar may be the only way to restore a bit of their hearing. I'm Ed Morrissey.